Hello everyone, welcome along to episode 14 of the Four Lads Had a Dream podcast. My name is Stephen Clifford, I am your host. Um, joining us as regular co-host, he is the Chief Sports Writer at the Herald Group and Glasgow Times, Mr Chris Jack. Chris, how are you? Hi Stevie, all good, thanks to Thanks for having us on once again. Looking forward to speaking to Michael. Yeah, joining us today is Rangers League Cup and League winner. He is Mr Michael Ball. Michael, how are you? I'm very good, lads. How are we all? Yeah, it's good. It's, uh, as we were just talking off air there, it's a very strange time. How's the family and everybody doing this? Well, yeah, everyone's fine, really. Obviously, because you're retired. It's sort of my way of life anyway. <laughs> Daddy daycare centre here, so it's uh, it's normal day here, but you just can't really sneak out, can you, to go and watch it? watch the game of football or go to local pub. So it's we're just spending a lot of quality time together. Hope it's so good, so 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 far so good. Let's see how long it lasts. Well, we're very much the same. We've got a young family, um, similar to what you were saying um, as well with the, the kids' channels all day. So a wee break for you. We're obviously going to talk to you about your career. Um, lifelong Everton fan. Who were your early career heroes and influences? Um, well, I was always, my me, me dad was football mad, um, so as soon as I was old enough to, to go to Goodison Park to watch Everton, he, he dragged me along from probably when I was three or four years of age, and my me, me dad's from a large family with my uncles and stuff, so I was always going to game, um, every home game, uh, grab a couple of away games, and, and when I was growing up, Everton, Everton, it was easy to support Everton as well because of the family, but Everton was successful then as well, so you're going to Wembley quite a lot. So it was always like the, the 80s team and the 90s. I was a big fan of Andy Gray. When you're younger, you start up front, don't you, in your local team, and you try and recreate the goals that you go and see uh, on the weekends. So it was it was anyone from the, Kevin Sheed, he was left-footed, I was left-footed. It was Kevin Sheed, Trevor Stephen. Um, it, was, it, was that, it was that mixture of, of players I always looked up to and when you're playing with your mates in the park and you're playing with your mates at the, you know, your local boys club, you know, you try and sort of emulate them um, and, and pick up on them. And you just, I've always sort of just idolised all the Everton players at that time and, you know, just, just enjoy playing football. There was nothing, I wasn't really bothered about schoolwork or music or anything else. I was just football daft and, the schoolwork with teachers used to drag me mum and dad in because every weekend all my stories about what I was up to was all about football, playing football Saturday, playing football Sunday. You know, they even asked me to, to write about space. So all I could think of was Everton Liverpool playing on the moon. You know, <laughs> I was that daft. You know, that's what I was really just focused on football nonstop. So it was sort of, it was driven into me very early age. But it was something I loved doing. And it was Liverpool youth system that you came through. You played in the, the same side or the same youth system as Michael Owen and a certain Stephen Gerrard. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, luckily enough, because when my dad was um, a bit cheeky, I was a bit too young to join the local boys. Glad to be seven. My dad sort of, uh, you know, lied about me age to get me playing football because uh, I was so desperate to go down. I used to go to the local park and watch them. I got asked to join in, and my dad sort of told a bit of a white lie to get me involved. So I played for a couple of years till he realised my age group. But where where I was from, where we started playing football, Hugh McCauley um, and he, and his father. Um, it was also called oh, Grandad Huey. He was a Liverpool scout, um, and his his grandson Barry McCauley was in our team. So a few of us got asked to go to Melwood on a, on a Tuesday to go and train with the Liverpool Centre of Excellence, and it was it was it was great. Obviously, it's Liverpool disliked them, um, but it's not. It wasn't as what it is back back then. It wasn't like it is now, where you you get your you know the, the training kits and stuff. You could wear your own kits. Uh, the only kits I had were England and Everton kits. So I used to wear, turn up at Melbourne with my Everton kit on and get a bit of stick from Stephen Highway, who was our coach then, and Hugh McCauley, Dave Shannon. Um, but we had great banter about it. There was, it wasn't just myself, there was a couple of us. and I enjoyed it all. They were great coaches, great influences in my career. Um, and I spent you know, numerous years there, as you said. There was, there was Jason Kumas was there as well. It was a great year. Jason Kumas, Stephen Gerrard, Michael Owen, John Newby. There was a, and, Quite a few players who went on to, to make a career in the game. Um, and I was there till I was 13. And when, when you're 13, it sort of gets a little bit serious then, where clubs from around your area um, ask you to go in round about like maybe the Easter Easter side uh, time, Man United, Oldham, um, Everton, to go and trial. And you know, Liverpool, they've got to you know, let you go and go and, and, and try these other clubs. But there was only one 
place I really wanted to go. And I was basically just sitting and waiting for, for Everton to come to come on the table, really. Um, and luckily enough, they did. They threw Ray Hall and Howard Kendall and Howard invited uh, my family for a, for a meal. And, um, and that was a strange, strange period for me, really, because obviously Howard was a, you know, my dad's sort of hero. We went to a local restaurant, my mum, my dad and Howard had a, had a good meal. They sat me down and um, I didn't have a suit. I had to borrow a suit off a, off a family friend to, to turn up at this meal. And he just, you know, Howard was a, you know, was a great character and he, he sat me down, asked how I was and said, do you want to sign for, sign for us, lad? And I was like, yeah, of course I do. I had a little bit of food and then he sent me away. And my mum and dad and Howard chatted away about all, all things Everton and all about my career. Obviously, 13, he didn't want me privy to what was going on contract-wise. And probably an hour, a couple of hours later, you know, still sitting on my own. And my dad went to the went to the bathroom and had a bit walk past me, gave me a slight little wink, and it was, it was looked like everything was all going to be all all be all signed and sealed. Um, came back, they were smoking cigars, a glass of champagne, and. And I was sort of sitting there, didn't really know what was going on. And um, Howard said, welcome to Everton, boy. Um, and that was it. Um, my dream sort of come true to sign for Everton. And uh, that was just before you know, you're 14 for your, your schoolboys. So it was uh, that was fantastic. Um, but I didn't actually join Everton, really, probably till after I finished school. After that, in that summer, then you're 14 to 16, I, I moved to the Lillyshaw National School, uh, the FA, uh, where's Brown, Michael Owen and... John Harley and a few others um, in that char- in character. So it was it was great to be under the umbrella of Everton, but I didn't really start training with them until I, I got to the YCS age. And things happened quite quickly for you, Everton. You you got your first team debut at 17. And a couple of names that you mentioned as early heroes, um, the likes of Andy Gray and Trevor Stephen, um, also had obviously great spells up, up north with, with Rangers, who you would later join. But we want to ask you, what was Walter Smith like with you at Everton and, and what was he like managerial-wise? And obviously he had just delivered nine in a row for Rangers and this was his first venture away from the club. What was he like with you and, and how did how did he help your career? Did he help your career? Were you ever in the end of the famous Walter Smith hairdryer? Uh, yeah, well, me and Walter started really well. Um, it, was, it was difficult times for Everton when Walter came in. Financially, Everton were, were struggling. Um, Howard Kendall got released, which was a lot of the players were very disappointed about. We just you know, stayed up when Howard was there and made me debut Dave Watson and uh, for that for the interim period. And then when Walter and Archie came in, I was um, to come back from a knee injury, so I was I was sort of in Belfield when they were setting things up for pre-season. Uh, Archie with his notepad of what he wanted to update Belfield and what he wanted in the canteen and stuff like that. So I got to know them. I was speaking to him throughout the summer before pre-season started and uh, Walter was he, he was good for, for myself as a youngster because I played so many games in a short period of time because I was only 17 and 18 I, I was sort of involved with the first team um, a lot but then also going away with the national team and under 18s and under 21s playing Thursdays and like, you know you, you, with your national team you're flying you know, the foreign countries, you're probably coming back on a Friday, you're rushing back to Liverpool to get the coach to maybe go to Southampton to play the weekend for, for Everton. So I had a sort of a lot of football and, um, minutes and they were very concerned with the, the amount of time that I was playing. So Walter, you know, for the first year, 18 months or so, he was trying to protect me as much as possible. Um, but because we, you know, the squad was very good, some very good players we had in our team, but the results weren't. We weren't getting the results. That was probably what we deserved. It was, it was a difficult time for Walter because we brought in a lot of players. He let a lot of youth players go. Maybe from, you know, from Gavin McCann, Richard Dunn, Kadamatri. Uh, they they all started to to get to, to leave and open the door to other players that Walter brought in. You know, Walter was very very busy in a transfer market at Everton at that time. We mattered at the court, John Collins. He brought a lot of doctors. He brought a lot of good players in, uh, Goffey. Um, as well, Mark Hughes. I mean, he was bringing experience, but also like the, the youth side of things were who I grew up with, you know, which helped me uh, when I hit to the first team. It was easy to settle because you still had a couple of your mates around you who you could sort of mix in the dressing room as long, you know, as alongside the, the senior pros of, of like Big Dunk and Gary Speed and Nevins and such like that. So it was a little bit difficult. Um, and how and me and Walter used to speak one on one quite regularly about what he wanted from myself and what he wants me to, 
sort of push on to to ask for my teammates. So I think he was sort of sort of grew me to be a bit bit more of a captain. You know, I was quite outspoken sort of on the pitch, but off the pitch, I was a, a pretty quiet person, uh, quite private. But on the pitch, I was demanding and of of my teammates. And you know, Walter was sort of good at putting me in that direction. Goffey was fantastic with me because I was a local scouts boy. I, I said how it is and. Some players probably didn't like it coming from a young pro, you know, just starting into the game. But that's just the way I was. I was very sort of determined, foot minded and asked a lot for my teammates um, because I knew what we needed to, you know, to, to, to bring to the table to get results the weekend. And maybe the way I went about things probably wasn't, um, in, in Walter's eyes, the best way of doing it. And Goffey pulled me once to just sort of explain to me, I'm right on what I'm saying, but I'm probably saying it in the, the wrong, the wrong way a little bit, and your teammates sort of, you know, the heads go down when you see a senior pro getting sheltered up by a young kid. They probably don't take it as well, so I had to sort of change my way a little bit. Um, but as the things went on with Walter, it did turn a little bit sour between me and him. More on, you know, asking not to go away on international duty um, to protect myself. And obviously, I want to be a part of England. He was obviously saying. Everton are paying me wages and you've got to be sort of put Everton first which obviously Everton was always going to be first and we had a few little mind games going on so it was, it was a bit of a strange relationship between me and Walter you know we was bubble wrap the first 18 months or so but then the second season maybe halfway through the second season the squad was getting so big that the changing room couldn't hold us all um, so anyone under 21 who would have to leave the first team dressing room and get put back to say the reserves, or what's it called then, the A-team sort of dressing room, which is, for me, it was a bit disappointing because when you're in the Belfield training room, uh, changing rooms at Everton, they were quite small. So you, as you sort of go 16 to 18 to 21, you build yourself up to get to the first team and you can't wait to get in there. So I've probably only been in there a year, 18 months. And then because I was under 21, I had to go back again into the other dressing room, which is fine because again, I'm with all my mates again. Uh, we were playing in reserves or under 18s and stuff. So it was, it was good, but you felt that you weren't a part of the first team, even though I was, I was playing uh, every week at the weekend. With the first team, I was sort of out a little bit and wasn't really involved in the everyday bits and bobs that goes on in the first team with the, with the senior pros. So that was disappointing. And you know, being a left back, you know, my first number was 25. and I was, you know, I had to push um, Andy Inscliffe out the way. He was playing for England at the time. And also um, Teddy Phelan was there. He was playing for the Republic of Ireland. So I had to push them up the way to get me debut and get me opportunity. Obviously, I think Inscliffe had an injury, so that helped me a lot. And he was great with me, uh, helping me and pointers in training and stuff like that. So I, I sort of felt like I deserved to be in that dressing room. You get to the, got the number three shirt and that was like, yes, I've got me number three. Um, the left back, you know, number that I've, you know, I've dreamed to get hold of, and then he brought in, you know, a lot of um, sort of left-footed players at that time. He brought back David Unsworth, he brought Bistoni, he brought Gary Naismith, and I felt, you know, I loved the challenge because I thought, well, I'm going to be better than them, so bring them, bring them on, and I'm going to be better and prove that, you know, I'm going to be on your team sheet, not them, which, you know, give me that sort of incentive. But I always just felt, well, there's other other positions that needed strengthening besides you know, the left back or the left centre back. And that's probably what helped me was because I could play in numerous positions. You know, we played me centre midfield, I played, you know, left back, left wing back, uh, left centre back, left to three. Um, so I got moved quite a lot. So he was trying to fit a lot of people in that he brought in, but he couldn't, he, he couldn't really seem to leave me out. And then, obviously, when he brought them players in, they wanted their demands of numbers. Pistoni wanted the number three. So they gave him the number three, and I, I got pushed back to being number 12. So it was little things like that. I didn't really care about the number. You know, I just wanted to be playing, you know, week in and week out. But that was like little digs uh, that Walter, little mind games he was doing. But he never pulled me to one side to, to explain it. You know, I just had to get on with it. I never moaned about it. I just proved that, well, if you give me an opportunity, you know, we had to sit on a bench for a couple of weeks and as soon as I got the opportunity to come on and score the pen and he couldn't leave me out then. So it was little things like that, which you probably thought that as a, as a youngster, I probably, you know, probably needed that. I needed that challenge to, to keep me game up, to challenge me to keep me levels up week in and week out. And he probably thought that was the best he, he thought to get the best out of me. Um, there was one maybe story before the derby game. Um, I think it was at Anfield. He pulled me in just before the, naming a team and, he just said, I don't think I'm going to play you today. Um, he knew how much 
obviously playing against the arch rivals Liverpool meant to me. Uh, and it was mind games again, but I was a bit naive back then of sort of taking it all in. Um, he said, you know, you're not going to be a part of it. I wasn't too happy. I had some choice words and sort of walked out and had my head down and really, probably a bit upset. Um, went to the team meeting. I probably told one or two of the players what's just gone on. They were a bit gobsmacked and, you know, devastated. But then when he turned over the team sheet, I was in. I was starting. Um, and I thought that was very strange, you know, because there was probably many players there um, at that time who probably needed that type of talk to get them up for the derby. But I just thought he picked on the wrong one. I didn't need that team talk or I didn't need that sort of chat to get me up for the derby. Um, it probably got me up too much to focus on, like, I'm going to prove you wrong to have that doubts in me. And I remember that game sort of going, just going by me. I can't remember really being involved in the game. The game was going by and me. My head didn't seem right. Um, and after the I think we drew the game anyway, but I just come off that pitch thinking, you know, my head was a bit, you know, I'm still a young kid. I didn't need that type of um, the mental side of things, what, what the extra pressure that he put on me. Um, I just thought it was other players probably needed that, maybe the fodden players who didn't really understand what the Merseyside derby means to the local lads, uh, to the local people. But he chose it to do it on me. And I just thought, well, that's a bit strange. Um, you know, you know what you're going to get out of me on a Merseyside derby. Um, history has proved it. So it was a bit sort of um, frustrating from my point of view. Um, and a bit strange of that's how Walter thought he needed to, to get the to get the best out of me. Um, so it soured near the end. Um, and then I, I had a, um, an injury in the summer. Well, I had injections in the summer to relax near the end of the season. So to get back from my knee injury um, and he basically I didn't speak, he didn't speak to him again um, it, very, it soured very very quickly um, my agent at the time was Trevor Stephen um, and he, he basically said to Trevor look there's a World Cup coming in 2002 you have to go and get Michael a club he said um, I'm going to be making changes and if he stays here he's going to rot in the reserves so it's up to you know Michael to go and find the club I told my agent at the time well I'm not going anywhere I'll help I'll do Walter, I'll stay here as long as I can. And I did so, you know, and I ended up getting player of the year that season. So it sort of thought, well, I've got the player of the year and hopefully he'll have a change of mindset. The board went to offer me a new contract and then all of a sudden it got sort of wiped away from me in that summer. I was away with my family and my friends and I come back to sign a new contract and all of a sudden it was, it was taken away from me. Um, now I'm older and wiser. They probably knew about me knee maybe I'm not too sure you know there's obviously when you're, when you're so young you're just thinking oh, why, why why has that happened but when you get a bit older and wiser there's a lot of things and I'm involved in sports agency and consultancy now and there's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes and you know it's just a bit disappointing it wasn't explained to me by either the chairman or by Walter you know it come from a third party and you're thinking you'd be man enough to say look good luck in your career but I'm going to change it that would, I would have just gone, okay, fair enough, and get your head around it. Because when clubs did come in for me, I was very dismissive. I didn't really, I wasn't interested. I really just wanted to stay at Everton. I wanted to captain Everton. I wanted to be, as, you know, get me testimonial Everton. That was sort of my plan, my ambition. But then when uh, you're, you're in the big boys world now, and then all of a sudden in that summer, you've got to start thinking about your future. Um, England managers were phoning me up, making sure I was going to get games because of the World Cup coming up. So you start thinking then, like, where can I go? Where can I go and get games? Where can I go and improve in my game? Um, Everton were, while we had good players, we were struggling. We were playing sort of negative football. We had some, sometimes we were probably playing five, maybe six defenders each game, minimum. You know, three three centre backs playing like maybe David Dunsworth on, on left back and Davy Weir played right back. You know, we we are very very defensive minded, and a proper it, it probably suffered my game a little bit. Where yes, I was very defensive minded myself as a player, but when I was going away with England, they were asking me to do more attacking side of of my game. When I used to when I first broke into the Everton side, I was more of a you know, a winger, a sort of wing back going forward and getting involved in the, the play going forward. But when I was at Everton, that never really happened. So it was a sort of contrast going away from the international duties than it was at the club. And how it looks at the time was basically trying to make sure that, you know, pick the right club for myself where I'm going to develop. 
um, and add to my game. And in that window, there was you know there was Liverpool, Middlesbrough, Steve McLaren, who was my coach at England at the time, or one of the coaches. And, and obviously Rangers came in for me quite late on. So I had the choice to make. Um, I was training on my own, isolated at Belfield. Uh, and Trevor basically gave me a call and said, look, if you can this weekend, let's get away from Liverpool. There was a lot of press about me of where my, my future was going to be playing the next season. Um, I was still determined to, to try and prove Walter wrong and stay and you know, be a part of it in football club. Um, but when that sort of option got took away from me, it was up to me to go and find the right club for me to develop as a player. And Trevor said, look, don't just come up, come and meet David Murray. Um, come, you know, stay, you know, stay in Glasgow for the weekend and just get away from the sort of the fishbowl that was happening in Liverpool at that time and, and just see what you think. Um, so that's basically how the, the Rangers connection started. What did David Murray say to you in that, in that meeting, Michael? And what did the, the manager say to you? You've obviously not, not short of options. I'm assuming that other teams would have been interested in you at that time. Why why Rangers? Why Glasgow? Why move up to the SPL? Well, it, it was it, it was total contrast from what was happening at Everton. I spoke to Steve McLaren on the phone. He wanted me to come and visit the, the training ground. Um, I, I, I basically said to Trevor Stevens, thanks very much for the interest, but, you know, I can't see myself playing against Everton right now. Um, you know, that's not going to happen. Liverpool made three bids for me. Yeah, there was obviously apparently numerous other clubs which Everton never accepted. Um, but there was no chance of me going over the over the park to, to sign for Liverpool. So when I went up to range, it was only just going to be just to be respectful and thank them for the interest and, and speak to them face to face and be a bit of a man about it and see what it's all about. And within... You know, speaking to David Murray, um, he was showing me round Ibrox. Um, you know, I didn't know the history about David Murray at all uh, in his personal life. And uh, he was talking about the ambition of the club, where he wants to be, who he wants to bring into the club. That was sort of the contrast of what was happening at Everton. I felt sort of wanted. I felt it sort of loved. They were sort of rolling up, not the red carpet. They were sort of like showing me probably what I was really hoping for that Everton would have given me. Um, and I got on the pitch um, at Ibrox, picked up the phone and phoned me dad and said, look, dad, I think I'm going to be signing. And he goes, well, I thought you were going to go up for the weekend. I said, I know that, but, you know, everything they're saying is what I want. You know, the playing Champions League football, being about playing with uh, good players that are in the, you know, already at the club. He's, trying, he's going to bring more in, the ambition. Um, there was talk then that they're probably going to join the Premier League within a couple of years. There was a lot, a lot of stuff that ticked the right boxes. They were um, not defensive-minded, you know, playing football, attacking. The fans demanding good football. The fans demanding, you know, attacking football, exciting football, and that was the the, the element sort of missing in my game uh, of the last eighteen months at Everton, where I was just defending and you know sweeping up and you know just sort of doing the basic stuff because we were. We were a defensive-minded team, but Rangers was the total opposite. You know, we had Arthur Newman there attacking all the time, and to be a part of that, that was something that I needed in, in my game uh, to improve as an uh, as a complete player. How would you describe your relationship with the manager? Um, obviously, to Cabacat signed you off to a, a decent start that season. Then a rather famous incident in the Open game <laughs> at Parkhead. Talk us through what happened that day. Also, the Rangers lost at the Celtic that in November, lost 2-1. Talk us through the incident with the manager and the Ricky Fallout afterwards. Yeah, it was yeah, it was just it was a strange one. It was uh, like Dick was very demanding as, as a coach. Um, I think we all know that. You know, he was out in the training field. He was slightly different to managers I've had in the past. Um, he was very hands-on. And he, he was great. He was a great coach. He, he knew what he wanted from his players. And, um, and training was really... The tempo of training was really high. Um, you know, the technical ability of the players, you know, it, it was good. It, you know, I was learning off all these type of players. You're in and out them, you're going to pick up all the best bits about these players and and improve your game. So that was always fantastic. Uh, then the old firm, you know, that that day came in, and it's probably the, the excitement of it all. I know what it's like at Liverpool, and you know, it's probably a bit more, you know, Celtic Rangers. So I was just wanting you know, wanted to start right, really. Um, and I think a couple of games before, I got I got brought off, um, and I, I I just didn't want that to happen. So I was enjoying the game. I thought we were playing better than Celtic at the time, but we were 
we were getting beat. So it was very, very, very frustrating about that. And then when I see my number come up, I was I shook my head and said, no, I'm not coming off. And he sort of changed his mind. And then all of a sudden, like five minutes later, he, I understand it. We needed to get back in the game. And the left, the full-backs always seem to pay the price for it. Uh, I think Peter Lovenkran's come on and, you know, Peter scored, <laughs> you know, to get us back into the game. You know, we didn't, didn't get another goal. We still got beat, but it worked. But I was really just frustrated that it was me again. Um, coming off the pitch, I've come to a new club um, and I just wanted to put, stamp my authority and I just felt I needed more time to, to do that. Um, coming off the pitch, obviously me, my head wasn't in the right space at that time and you know, I basically told uh, Dick where to go and he, he pointed at me and said, you're never going to play for this club again. And I just went in the changing room thinking, oh no, what's happening? You know, my career is, is going to be sort of over before it's even started. And after that, it was sort of back at Murray Park and on, I think it was whatever day it was, Monday, Tuesday, the chairman put us on a conference call. We spoke about it. Um, we ironed out all the problems. He understood my frustrations. You know, David Murray, he said, we have to find me. We went to Cash for Kids on the local radio station. But what made me laugh was before Murray phoned, he, he pulled John Gregg in, um, advocate, to, to speak to me and Dick. And there was three of us, you know, in, in Dick's office and chatting away. But Dick couldn't understand my sort of raw Scouse accent at that time. So John Gregg was basically using an interpreter. We couldn't really understand my Scouse accent either. I couldn't understand this Scottish accent. I couldn't understand Ditch, Dutch, English. So it was quite a bit of a funny little... Uh, it probably broke the ice a little bit. Um, I was laughing because we couldn't really understand each other, what was actually what we're trying to put over uh, until the chairman made a phone call and put us on a conference speaker. And uh, we basically shook hands and got on with it. Uh, that was it, um, and that's what I liked about it. Yeah, he, you know, obviously I needed to show him more respect, which I did after that, uh, and then obviously we were back back in the team again a week later. So it was all forgotten. He knew, he he knew I was just hungry to be successful, and I was just frustrated because it was going against us that day, and I took it out on the manager instead of looking at myself as well. So I understand his point of view, um, and he understood mine. So it was sort of one of them where. You know, you're playing against your arch rivals. It's not going for you, and, and you, you know, you, you basically your head's blew up, um, and you just try and look for the first, the first person to come across you to, to, to sort of put the blame on. And, and unfortunately for me, it was the manager. <laughs> you would only play twice more, I think, that season: uh, Ross County away, and then uh, Dundee away, and then also the the knee injury that would really kind of keep you out for for so long, and perhaps not get wreck your your Rangers career. Can you, can you talk us through the? The, how the injury happened, the initial diagnosis, and the, did you know straight away that now this was going to be a serious one, and this could you know, keep you out for quite some time? Um, no, I didn't really. You know, um, no, I mean, my knee was, you know, before before signing for Rangers, you know, I had a, a very tough medical, uh, you know, probably dragged on for a couple of weeks, um, and then a little test come back. The doctor was really happy with it, and you know that gave me a sort of the sense of relief to go, right, okay, I can push my body to the limit and, you know, crack on it and have a good go. It was after the Dundee game, nothing actually happened. I never had a tackle or, you know, there was nothing that sort of happened in that game. It was waking up in the morning um, after the Dundee game. You know, I've done a lot of a lot of running in that game and the, the, the pitches and the flattest is a bit of a hill in that game, on that pitch. And I just thought, well, he's a little bit, see, it feels just a little bit off, a little bit swollen, a little bit. Um, we were off the next day and I met up with Claudia Rainier and Tori Andre Flo just to go for a bite to eat and um, I couldn't get out the car. You know, my knee was, it just started really swelling up bigger and bigger and bigger. So I had to phone the, the physio up and he just said, get back home. I sit and I see it tomorrow morning. He was just hoping that it'll just settle down after a week or so. So when it never, that's probably when the alarm bells sort of started ringing. Um, you know, you couldn't, you can't really get a scan. Uh, on an X-ray, when your knee is so swollen, so I have to sort of wait for get as much swelling down as possible, try and rest my knee as much as possible, and then I thought going to uh, went to go into the Nuffield Hospital for my first scan, and nothing really showed up, um, which was, I was a bit of a belief as well, and thinking, okay, that's fair enough. Just it's just going to be a little bit of time, bit of physio, and hopefully I'll be back again. And nothing seemed to be working. I went back for another scan, and he put a bit of a dye in it. And then that's where the bad news really happens, where the doctor said, look, it looks like you're 
got to try and see a specialist and flew to Germany, see a specialist, uh, got told what to do um, exercise-wise. Um, he said, we can operate, but let's try and not do that. Uh, so I was working on rehab, of trying to come back without any any surgery, and it just wasn't working for me. It was, it was sort of one step forward, two steps back, and Rangers got in touch with Dr. Stedman, um, the, the world's best knee surgeon in Colorado, and he put me on a programme. I explained I've already been doing that programme from the, you know, the German doctor and he said, come out and see me, let's have a little look. Looked at me, told me to do certain exercises, told me to do certain positions on my knee and he was didn't seem that alarmed. He, he was going to send me back to Glasgow. Um, the doctor explained, you know, we have been doing these exercises and we're just not getting anywhere. And he said, okay, before you go, we'll, we'll give you another scan. Um, with a, a, a different type of scan, a more in-depth scan on your knee, because it was very, very localised, my pain, it wasn't sort of all over, it was a very tiny, small spot that really sort of was like a knife stabbing into your, into your knee, and it was very hard to sort of, it was underneath your, your kneecap, so it was very difficult for the physio to sort of find it, um, and when you did it, it obviously gives you the shooting pain, the surgeon couldn't find it, so when he gave me that um, special sort of uh, scan, he come back and looked at me and said, "You're operating you tomorrow." He said, "I can't, I can't understand how you're walking." Um, so you're in straight first thing tomorrow morning. So that was the sort of a shock. You know, you're listening to the doctors and you're thinking, "Okay, it can't be that bad because they're sending me home." And then all of a sudden, you get that news. So you're phoning home and go, "Look, I'm, looks like I'm going to be staying here for a while." And then the next day, he, you know, he done the surgeon the surgery. He came and see me a few hours later. He put me on a bike straight after, as soon as I woke up from surgery and said, get on the bike. I was quite shocked about that. And he was speaking to me. He was very, very calm. But he, he asked me, you know, there was a lot of crystallizations around the tendon. So you could understand while I was playing football and while I was walking, because I was getting protected by these crystallizations around my tendon. But that also deteriorated my tendon um, and made it worse. And there was only a couple of fresh pieces of tendon that was left to save uh, the rest was all cut away. So he just basically told me to take time on your rehab. Uh, you're going to be fine. You know, he drilled four holes to bleed to make it grow back. And, you know, he said everything will be will be fine. It's just your, your body now, how it how it handles the recovery. Um, don't rush, but don't go too slow in recovery. And hopefully you'll be, you'll be back playing football. But you were very, very lucky to get your the surgery now you know if you carried on a little bit longer it would have been a lot worse and maybe not play football again so that was a very big shock and it was more down to the probably the injections I've had over the over the last 18 months before the move to Rangers that's protected me Nate that maybe either maybe passed the medical at Rangers and, and, to, and to play to, and play football for the level I was without any pain you know the, the tendon was just wearing away you know, training each day and obviously every game was getting worse and and after that Dundee game, that was the that was the final one. So that was, you know, daunting for myself, and you know, very, very, you know, very frustrated. And obviously, the club itself were very frustrated. But I, I give them a lot of applauders. They could have sent me somewhere, you know, a little bit cheaper, you know, to get me knee looked at. But they sent me to the best. They sent me to the best man in the world to get myself back. And, you know, that's, you know, it cost them a lot of money at that time to do that, you know, flying to America. I could have just done it, gone to London or Amsterdam or Germany, but they wanted the, the best specialist to have a look at me need to get me back playing the best possible way. So, you know, if it probably wasn't for that decision by the, the club doctor, you know, I probably wouldn't have played football again after that. You obviously missed the first couple of months of the Alec McLeish reign uh, and then missed the entire first full season with Alex. How, how difficult was that watching on me, considering how good a season that was for Rangers and obviously the success they had and the, you know, some of the real dramatic moments of that season? There must have been so much good about you know, running about the club that at, at that time, but really difficult for you having to you know, sit on the sidelines and go through your rehab and go through your recovery, just wishing you were out there. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It was. It was. It was good, though, in in a way. Um, yeah, obviously disappointed I'm not involved, but you know, again, the club was going through a bit of a change. Alex came in, um, you know, and he done what he, he could. We, we won the two trophies as soon as he walked through the door, uh, and I was I was back joining with the lads for pre-season. Uh, you know, I was gonna, I was hopefully going to be sort of involved, um, and then we, we had the mid the mid-season break and. Um, in my rehab, sorry, that was over in Canada. Um, 
and it, I just wasn't getting. I was running on the pitch. I was training with uh, doing the, the warm ups with the players, and I was getting close to first team training. And I thought I'm going to get back here before the end of this season. Alex thought I was going to be back. Uh, the physios did, but I just couldn't. After sort of running after three quarter pace and sprinting for maybe a week or so, my knee would react again. Um, but the contact with again with David Murray, uh, David, um, the doctor Stedman, sorry, and the doctors, he, he called me back in and said, look, I, I know what's happened. Um, basically, your, your knee's just a little bit too tight. Um, so all I've got to do is sort of, do, not the same operation, but I've got to open it up again and loosen your knee a little bit and put it back and then you'll be fine. But your rehab again is going to be a long four to six months again. So that was the season wiped out again. But I felt that I was getting so close to, to being part of the lads again. So that was difficult, but the lads were playing well. You know, the, the atmosphere in, in the training ground was a lot, you know, happier. Um, the manager was speaking to you. When you were injured under Dick, he didn't really sort of show any interest in how you're getting on. He was obviously focused on the players who were fit and available to him, which that's some ones you like, that's some arms. Alex was sort of open to everybody, being interested in where I was in my rehab and also focusing on the team. And, and when they were all successful, you remember that Ibrox, they all done the, the parade and getting on to get the medals and walking around the pitch and stuff like that. I just didn't want to be a part of it. You know, it was great to see the lads and teammates doing that, but that was something that I wanted to be able to go, well, I was a part of this. I deserve to, you know, the the applause off the fans and, you know, off the Ibrox crowd. I want to be able to do something to to get that. You know, there's a few players there who sort of, what do you call it now, the John Terry's <laughs> of this world, you know, got themselves unchanged and joined in the celebrations, which that's that's up to them. You know, that might be the first and the only time they might be able to do that. But I wanted to be able to do it on my own back of being a part of a, a league-winning title um, team and put my own sort of effort in to, to, to receive the round of applause from, from the crowd. So it was something that I loved to see the, all the players. You know, it, was so, it was such a close sort of finish as well. But you know, seeing your teammates enjoying it all, it, it just gave me that bit of hunger to go, great, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm at the right club, successful club, but, you know, it's up to me now to get myself back back from injury and back on that pitch to to start enjoying these um, celebrations myself um, you know so that's what sort of driven me on to see that to what, what what is possible if I get myself back fit Unfortunately for the club Michael at this point we suffer horrendous kind of downsizing um, the likes of Ferguson Newman uh, Michael Moles uh, Lorenzo Amoruso they all leave that's coincided with you getting back to fitness um, and the season starts quite well. Um, you're, you're doing well, you play of the month and things like that, but the season is, is basically a bust because a lot of kind of bargain signings didn't work out and it was a, a pretty poor season. But positively for you, you were back playing and doing a lot better. How satisfying was that after that length of time out, albeit being a disappointing season for the club? Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's that spot on. It was it was it was mixed emotions. Um, personally, for me, it was just getting on the pitch and playing and, and proving that I can perform at that level again. Um, you know, as you as you as you mentioned, and we brought Mikel when Mikel was in, he got the Young Player of the Month. My first season back, I hadn't played football for two years, um, and I got Player of the Month in the August. And Alex got Manager of the Month, so it was a good start for us. Um, and obviously, as we know, the season didn't work out as planned, and it was disappointing. I think Mikel left as well, and the club wasn't in the same situation financially as it was when I moved there. Um, there was a lot of changes going on, and it was disappointing. But personally, it was sort of, you know, I played many games, and it was sort of proof to myself that okay, this season hasn't gone to plan. But you know, I played a lot of games back to back. Had a run of games. McLeish was trying to sort of leave me out at times, but because you're always chasing. And chasing, you know, you you want to be a part of it, and he wants to play you. Yeah. Um, we did have a, a bit of a plan before the season started to try and sort of ease my way in, but there's no way, you know, if he's going to ask me to rest, I'm going to say, yeah, you just want to put that shirt on and get playing. So it was sort of, and when we're playing catch up, you, you, you're forcing the issue a little bit. Um, and the season obviously finished disappointingly, but it was sort of a, a tick in my own head mentally that, look, I, I can do it. You know, I'm back playing to a decent level. We can improve. Um, that's my first season over and done with. Now back, you know, sort of full season that range is done. Now let's crack on and start trying to win things. Unfortunately, unbeknown to the kind of fan base, a contract issue appears that, that we didn't know about. 
because of a certain amount of appearances. And you've spoken about this publicly before. You only played four times um, in the 2004-2005 season until this was kind of sorted out. And it was very much you that, that had to make the sacrifices to sort this. Can you kind of tell us, um, tell the fans what happened there and, and how you managed to resolve it? Because you ended up actually sacrificing and putting your hand in your pocket. Is that not right? The contract situation that had that happened was, you know, I was unaware of. Um, I all I remember was when I first went up to Murray Park to do me part of my medical that David Murray come on the come on the on the pitch in his car and sheltered me over and just said, "Look, I've done the deal with Everton. We've agreed. I'm paying so much now, uh, so much extra, 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 and that was it. Done." So I thought, well, you know, that's it. That's how normal transfers work, and. I didn't realise it was performance based um, after a certain amount, so it was it was just it was a surprise to me. Alex McLeish and David Murray just just pulled me to one side and said, "Look, the club is not in a situation to to play you, and we can't afford the next balloon payment to Everton, and it's uh, there's nothing there's nothing we can do right now. Hopefully, something. But I'm going to try and change things. I'm going to try and get some money into the club. So hopefully, you know, we'll get this situation all sorted. So I was sort of biding my time and just hoping something was going to happen. It was really. It felt like being injured all over again. Uh, you're part of the first team again. You're part part of the players. I'm training with them, you know, Monday to Friday, but not doing what I've came to the club to do is play football on a Saturday at the weekend and, and start winning games for Rangers. That's what I've been brought to the club to do, and just training was again. You're not getting any rewards for it. You, a lot of players, you know, they like the banter and changing rooms and training and stuff like that, but they just can't wait to play. You know, at Ibrox, you just can't wait to play at the weekend and. No matter how, how I trained on a Monday to Friday, if I've trained like Lionel Messi, I'm never going to be playing on the Saturday. And I was just really, really disappointed that you're not getting any rewards of what you're putting in and training. So I just had to be a professional as I could. I never moaned about it. I just sort of got on with it, uh, tried to be involved with the first team, helped them as much as I can. The young kids were coming through and, and just putting them in the right mindset as, as well as focus on my on own game and hoping that something would happen. Um, I was how it worked out. I was at I was in Ibrox before one of the games, um, just in my suit. The lads were all getting changed, and I got a nod to go and see uh, the chairman upstairs. And he's the one, to be fair to him, put it to me. He 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 explained the whole situation. Um, he wanted me to get out on the phone to speak to Bill Kenwright at Evans to see if anything we can do that end. I said, well, you know, we we just want to get this situation sorted. How can we do it? And he. He basically just come, put, come up with the figure. Um, you know, there was no agents involved. It was just me and him. And he just said, what's your thoughts about that? He said, it's not just about being at Rangers. It's about your career going forward because you've got a couple of years left in your contract. I can't afford to play for, play, uh, you know, pay Everton. So you're going to be sitting here for two years without playing. I was thinking about myself as a footballer. All I want to do is play football. Money goes out the window. We agreed that, you know, you know to, to sort out the situation, if I pay four thousand out my wages every time I play, will will that be will that be the deal? And he said, Great, that's fine. Um went downstairs and Alex McLeish walked over to me straight away and said, What's happened? I said, sorted. He said, Can you play? I went, Yeah. You know, I, I wasn't, you know, mentally thinking about being a part of it and then all of a sudden I was on the bench. Sort of ripped my suit off as quick as I could and, you know, I think Jimmy had to go and find <laughs> dust off my old <laughs> my old shirts that I wore early on the season. And next minute, I'm, I'm back on the on the bench at Ibrox, you know, being part of it all again. And Alex, I think maybe the last minute of memory, last minute or two minutes of the game, um, he brought me on, um, which was great. It was fantastic, and you know, being back, put me, you know, scores back on the on the Ibrox turf and being a part of it again. Because now, okay, this is the, the time to, you know, to kick on now and let's finish the season on as off as a high. And you know, after the game. Alex pulled me to one side and said, what's the deal then? And I just laughed and joked him. and said, you just cost me 4,000 quid for two minutes. And he, he was laughing. He didn't he didn't know what the rules were or what me and the uh, the chairman had agreed. And we had a bit of a laugh and I said, look, it's worth every penny. He said, you know, as long as I'm playing, I'm happy. So that was it then. And it was just up to, you know, Alex was happy. You know, I was obviously happy and the chairman was absolutely at work for everybody. And I got a chance to sort of, You'll play catch up to Celtic and see if we can finish the season successful. And we certainly did finish the season successfully. Um, you come back; it's another boost. And and by this point, we're we're kind of charging on. 
And we get to the League Cup final versus Motherwell, very famous day for the support, the David Cooper final. Um, you play uh, at left back, and finally a chance for you um, to experience a cup final with Rangers after everything. Um, how did that feel, and how much did you enjoy finally being a winner at Ibrox? No, it was it, it was fantastic, you know. Being there, being being at Rangers, the, the being to cup finals, the Loving Cans Cup final, um, and you know you're loving the occasion, you're loving you seeing your teammates play well and cut and be successful, and you join the parties afterwards. But there's always something missing because I wasn't part of it. Um, you know, the David Cooper final was my first one. I remember being a bit not nervous beforehand. I wasn't a nervous person, but. I had like superstitions where I, I was like wearing long sleeves and um, Jimmy the kit man only made short sleeves ones for the game and I was thinking, oh no, this is going to be the day. I, I think I wore number, I think I wore Barry's number, number six. Uh, it was the old school one to 11. I was thinking, oh no, if, you know, things are going superstitiously against me. But then obviously we, we were successful, you know, getting up and you know, lifting my first trophy up, you know, as, as a player. Uh, my first one for Rangers was... Uh, you know, it was it was fantastic, and the reason why I came to that club and was to be successful, and that was my first taste of it. You know, enjoying coming back to Ibrox and celebrating with the players, the fans, the staff. You know, that was that's what it was all about. And you know, you just it just makes you hungry for more. And you know, I think when we got over the line with that league cup, it made us all determined to you know to catch Celtic up to for the league title. We had um, Alex McLeish and Alex Ray on. Just just there last week with myself and Chris, and we were we were speaking obviously about this league running, and uh, Rangers dropped points um, against Dundee United and then against Celtic at home, and we're five points behind with kind of four games to go. We're travelling up to Aberdeen, and and the and Alex Ray tells us that boys had it on in the bus, and and it comes through that Hibs will beat Celtic, and there's a bit of a a kind of a celebration on the bus, and then we get back into it with a few weeks to go. What's what's it like, Michael? What's the mindset like in, in terms of playing catch up like that, um, and making sure you're still in it? And what was the dressing room like as well, from your point of view? The the, the lads were always concentrating on it. I remember, say, the first season, um, I was there on the deck. It was a the change room was like a little bit down when we were behind. It was sort of like, oh, you know, we're out of Europe. There wasn't much to play for. And they were a bit disappointed that domestic trophy is the only one we've got. It's going to be a long season now, and you know we've got to play, you know, catch up the Celtic. So it was that was the mindset. It wasn't the mindset then. It was just disappointment then. But under Alex, under the players there, they were hungry for it. They, I think we knew we were better than them, and we were a bit frustrated that we, you know, we were so far off and playing catch up. But we knew that if we're dropping points, they're going to drop points. He said, you know, we've. We shouldn't have dropped the points, but we did. We can't do nothing about it. There's no point moaning or sulking. And we had, we had a, a mixture of uh, experience and uh, players who knew about the club at Rangers, uh, experienced players, and we just knew that we are a better side than them. So if we're dropping points, they're going to drop points, but we can't, you know, we've got to keep doing our thing. We've got to focus on ourselves and hopefully, you know, we're there or thereabouts near the end of the season. We, but we've got an opportunity of being successful. We've got the first trophy under our belt. So we've just got to kick on now and, and, and put the pressure on them because, you know, Alex said we're fitter than them. You know, we we are a better side than them, and we, we we proved that against them. You know, you know, in the semi final that they were on their knees in the league cup against us. They, they they weren't up to shape. We were, and we were just hoping that they were they they were cracking. But we had to be there to take over them when when that happened. Both Alex's um, speak obviously very fondly of that day in in Leith and. Um... There's obviously a lot of kind of... We were laughing last week because um, we're obviously 1-0 up. Hibs aren't wanting to win. Um, and Marvin Andrews is, is dribbling into the opposition half with the ball. <laughs> Alex Ray's going mad. And, and Alex McLeish is trying to tail him. And then all of a sudden, there's that roar. Michael, can you explain what that felt like and, and what kind of emotion and things? Because I know when the second roar went up, you actually had the ball at left back. <laughs> How did that feel? Can you explain that two minutes to us and tell us? It's, it, it was. It's a. It's a strange. You know, I've been in the situation before, but the opposite end, where you know, I was fighting relegation with Everton, and I heard a cheer in the crowd, and but luckily enough, we stayed up. So I was sort of not used to it, but I've had that feeling before. We're playing that game, and you know, it's probably the the game where I've probably touched the ball 
and had minutes on the ball more times than any other game in my career. You know, the, the ball was getting passed me from the goalie, from, from Marvin, and I was, wasn't getting sort of pressed, you know, pressed by the winger. They were happy with the result. You know, we were happy with the result so far, but we obviously wanted to not make a mistake and obviously try and push for the second goal without keeping ourselves open at the back. And, you know, I always seem to have the ball running forward 10, 10 yards and then coming back again. And, and then when that, the second cheer came up, it was like, what's gone on? You don't know what's gone on. Have they just scored again? Is the game over? You know, we didn't know what the situation was, but we also have to be focused. You know, I've seen Barry and Alex hugging each other. I'm screaming at them going, it's not over yet. You know, you know, if I, <laughs> I just think I was defensive minded. If someone slips or, you know, if I pass the ball and make a mistake and they score, we've lost. You know, we've, you know, we've lost the league. You know, we've, still, the game's not over. Our game's still not over. So, we, you know, Alex and Barry are jumping up and down. So, they probably knew what was going on because they were closer to the, you know, to Alex McLeish's side. But I was on the opposite side of the pitch just thinking, guessing work of what actually is going on and, you know, I'm, I've got the ball and I'm looking for the teammate to pass it to and they're too busy looking at the fans and looking at everybody else. And, you, you know, I've got goosebumps, uh, goosebumps talking about it now. And at the time, it was it was a surreal feeling um, of you sort of knew what was happening, but until, oh, the whistle and our game was finished, I was never going to know. Um, but then as soon as the final whistle went and you see, you know, the doctor um, and Alex and everybody go on on the bench, you that was it. It was done. We've done it. You know, Marvin keep believing came through, and it was it was it was a surreal game. Because I remember Hibbs. I don't know who the guy is, but they made a sub, and I was very used to sort of having no one sort of pressing me on the ball. I could do sort of what I wanted with the ball, keep it, pass it back to the keeper, and uh, maybe do a long ball to, to shot already made a run or so. Um, but then this guy started pressing me and closing me down. And I was looking at him thinking, does he know what's going on? <laughs> you know, it was sort of, I had to have a little word with him and go, what are you doing? You know, he was keen. You know, I don't know whether he was a, a young kid. He was keen to try and prove a point to his manager and, and love being a part of part of the game. But he was putting me under a bit of a pressure at times. So I was thinking, someone needs to have a word with him um, to calm him down. Because, you know, they, I think, would they be in Europe if they stayed at 1-0? Is that correct? Yeah, they were, in, yeah. they were in. Alex Ray said it was the weirdest game he's ever played in because they were happy to get beat 1 0. We were happy yeah. to win 1 0. And it was just yeah. trying to keep ball and trying to keep Marvin from not getting excited. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it was. You know, and, you know, Marvin, you know, I've watched that game back so many times and Marvin's just everywhere. You know, he's, he's winning headers, you know, he's bringing the ball down, he's going on Macy's and, you know, you're covering him. Um, I've looked at myself, so I'm thinking, why am I standing over there? You know, I'm I'm way out of position, but it's because of the way the game was. We'll make the pitch as big as possible and keep possession, and hopefully the clock will go faster and faster. Um, it was one of it is it is the most strangest game I've ever been involved in. But I just remember that when when he made that sub and he was starting to put me under pressure a little bit, and I can't remember how a word with one of the other players. I said, tell him to calm down. You know, he's, he's happy. I don't think he understood. With the situation Hibs were in, but luckily enough, you know, we got the title. Uh, I think Fernando's words, God bless him, at the end were, were spot on. That it, when you do get stick in the media or or from the other side, sort of, you know, put you down a little bit, it gives you that incentive to prove people wrong and to prove that you no, know, we we actually are the, a better team and we did deserve it that season. Yeah, we got a touch of luck, but we, you know, Marvin said, keep believing. We knew. We, we had an opportunity um, and, you know, until it's mathematically, you've, off, you've just got to be professional as much as you can. And I think Alex, you know, did his best with the players to try and be professional and go out there and go, look, if they slip up, we've got to be sitting right behind them and be there. There's no point then, you know, and we, we the lads went out and done that and you know, we got the rewards, luckily enough. And of course, Fernando's immortal words where first is everything, second is nothing. How, how, Brilliant a feeling was that, Michael, in terms of everything you'd went through from the injuries to the money to finally taste that success with Rangers because it's what we crave. I mean, as Boyhood yeah. fans, it's, it's everything for us. But for you, how, how is how did it feel? And, and was it just, not vindication because that's the wrong word, but was it like finally just a massive overwhelming relief that you've, you've finally been able to um, experience that with Rangers? It was, it, it, you know, that's why I, I went to be successful and be a part of a, you know, a league-winning team. And you know, to wait for as long as I did was was really frustrating. And 
the situation I've been through. So it felt more for myself. It was more personal for me. And I remember the year before me and Alex had a, had a, a, a quiet bust up after, I think it was an Aberdeen game. We had a few choice words and, you know, he said to me, look, you, you know, you've come to this club to win. So it's not just winning Bootle Boys Club. He thought it was from Bootle and Liverpool. You know, we're in like play of the year at Boys Club and we had a laugh and a joke. And then after that game, I was, you know, uh, the doctor reminded me of his, of his words to me. So I walked over to Alex and I'll like, add, add this trophy now to me, Bootle Boys Club play of the year. And he laughed and joked and we were hugging and, you know, just, there was tears. There was the, the whole, the, the whole like changing room was sort of half a disbelief of sort of what's just happened. And, you know, we couldn't wait to get out on the pitch to celebrate with the fans. But we couldn't wait to get home, you know, get back to Ibrox and see the fans there. And, you know, I never, I think there's probably half a dozen of us didn't even get a shower. You know, we just put, kept our kit on, put our suits over. You know, Dad O'Pierce going off his head in the, you know, on the coach. And, you know, it, and shot his dan- dodgy dancing going on. It was just great to see the relief and and all the hard work that we've been going through. I'm patient for myself to finally go out and, and enjoy it and walking around Ibrox and, Celebrating with the fans was something that you know I can I can step on the pitch and go look you know I'm a part of this now and that's what I've witnessed you know a couple of times being on the sidelines and I was a part of it so it was a it was it was you know much a relief to me as well. Having experienced that high and also you reveled in those in those celebrations, Michael, how difficult was it to then also just a couple of months later to be going your way out of Ibrox? Did you feel it was like a premature ending, or did you get the feeling that it was perhaps coming given? Everything that was going on at the club at that time. Um, yeah, I, I, I was. It was again. It was sort of another knock. You know, you you've gone away. You've been successful in the summer. And you're coming back, and you're going right. Okay, let's let's kick on. Let's go and get three trophies now. And and then it was it was known by sort of early on pre-season. You know, there was chief executive were involved. The director was involved. Martin Baines were involved. They were you know, they're talking to me and and asking me. You know, I'm not talking to clubs, and I'm going. I'm not talking to anyone. You know, I'm happy here. And he said, well, obviously the situation, you know, we, you know, we're we listening to offers for you. And Alex didn't want me to go. I said, I'm happy to stay here. I'll keep on paying the money. You know, you're paying three games a week. It's 12 grand a week. But I'm happy to, to stay here. I think Alex's eyes lit up and he was happy to hear that. Um, but the way the club was, I think budget-wise, they, they weren't prepared to, um, you know, to do that. And I, was, I had to look for other options. There was, I was very close to signing for Birmingham. Blackburn, and then luckily enough for me, because of Ronald Waterhouse, the PSV so PSV got to the Champions League semi-final against AC Milan in 2005, and they should have probably got to the final. It was an away goal that got them to play Liverpool in 2005. AC Milan, um, they sold their their left back to to Tottenham, and I was on the way to the airport, and all of a sudden, uh, Gus Hiddick made a phone call to myself, and he said, "Fly over, I want to speak to you and get you part of PSV." Um, and that was basically it. David Murray called me up and wished me all the best. Thanked me for my services. Wished it would have gone a little bit better. Thanked me for the way you know things ended and, and welcomed me back to the club as, as whenever I wanted. You know, so that was sort of nice to to hear from Murray, uh, even though you know, the situation is probably out of his hands a little bit. He, he has put money into the club, but you know his money's run out, and I was the, probably the victim of it all. But you know, I went to Rangers Football Club uh, and, uh, and that final season, I was successful. And then Alex, you know, sent me a message as well, wishing me all the best and thanked me as well. So it was, it was nice to sort of still be friends and still be, you know, professional with, um, with Alex and, and David Murray and then just concentrate on, on my career moving forward. And if it wasn't for that decision and of David Murray pulling me in, I might have not have, you know, Got that move to PSV to go on and be successful at PSV with a title and another, you know, and another championship. So, you know, it was decisions that I made at Rangers that got us back to, to finish the season off at the Hyatt Rangers that got me a move to PSV. So, it's not as I said earlier on, it's not about the money; it's about putting that shirt on and um, enjoying football as you did as a kid. And that's what you wanted to do. It was privileged to do that, and you want to try and drag that on as much as possible. Um, you see many. M- many players now who are, yeah, you're on good money, but everybody's on good money. You know, who's a footballer? It's what's important is putting that shirt on and being a part of it and playing football and, and playing football for the fans. That's who come out. You know, football's all about the fans at the end of the day, and you've got to go out and entertain them. And, but you're entertaining doing a job that you love. You know, it's a dream come true. And any player who's got the ability to do so, 
you know, use it to the max, you know, and, and do everything you can to prolong your career. Obviously, as you mentioned, you're going to have a bit of success over in over in Holland. You have a couple of years at Manchester City and a couple of years at Leicester City as well. Having you now, when you look back on your on your career and your and your time in Glasgow, how how does Rangers as a club compare? How does you now Glasgow compare as a as a football city? And would you know how highly would you rate those those years that you spent at Ibrox just in terms of experiences that you had and you know, what what you gave to Rangers, but also what Rangers gave to you? I loved my time up there. You know, I had a young family back then. Um, it was it, it, it just be okay. I wasn't playing as much as I wanted to, but the club itself it was, it was huge. I knew it was big anyway. But you know, traveling with Rangers, you know, going to America and the the preseason games, the, you know, there's thirty, forty thousand people tearing up, and the Rangers conventions that you you get sent out to, and they're there. You know, no matter where you go now, you know, I'm part of Rangers Football Club, and I always will be. No matter you go on holiday, there's Rangers supporters clubs everywhere. And you know, recently I went away and was hoping to get the old firm game, but because of obviously the virus right now, it was cancelled. So I was hoping to go to Rangers supporters clubs to watch that game. And you know, it's it's everywhere. Rangers is is a, is a huge football club, and hopefully, you know, it's going to be successful for, for many years to come again. And you know, I've been just fortunate to be a part of all that, all of the big players, all the legends that the club have had, in, you know, over the years. Just to be a part of Rangers football club has been a blessing. Michael, the final one from me. Obviously, you're a, a huge part of um, the, the club's kind of history and, and helicopter Sunday and things like that. But how do you feel about Rangers now? What's your what your favourite memories? I know what you've just said, obviously, but what looking back on it, it was obviously a mixed spell and it was kind of up and downs. But do you have any regrets at all about how things worked out, or is it all positive? And and how do you feel about the club now going forward with Stephen Gerrard in charge and things like that? It, 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 it's hard to talk about regrets. There's no, there's no regrets because it was out of everybody's hands. There was no, there's no sort of finger pointing, you know, um, of what went on. It's happened. It's football. You know, situations just happen. You just got to deal with it. And luckily enough, you know, you know, it finished on a Hyatt Rangers with, with, with a couple of trophies. So that you know, you, I just wish you know you could obviously get a bit more under your belt while I was there. You know, I was there for four years. Loved every minute of it. Just wish to be a part of it on the pitch a bit more, and and you know it's just disappointing to see a club like that you know go through what it's had, you know what it's been going through for the last few years, and you know Stevie, you know growing up with Stevie, you know he's a great lad, great obviously a great player, obviously on the wrong side at Liverpool, but you know it's great to sort of support him now, you know being at my club, um hopefully he will be successful and he will be, given that time and you know he's closing the gap, you know we've got to you know if you look at Celtic's wage bill paid to our own. You know, there's, there's a massive gulf there. Um, I mean, it's up to Stevie now, who's, who's a coach at the end of the day. He's our manager, but he's going to coach these players to be better players. And that takes time. Um, you hopefully want to add more players when he can to the squad to make them better each and every window. And that's going to happen. Um, and while we keep on, you know, it's, diff- it's, it's so difficult, you know, because it's when you're seeing your arch rivals, you know, winning things, it should give you that incentive to be a part of it. You know, you can put your head down and moan about it and, and point fingers and try and find whose fault it is, but there's nothing you can do. You know, it's up to Steve and, and the players now to, you know, to to put the, you know, get the results in. Um, you know, you know, if the season starts all over again, if Celtic drop points, we've got to be there to pick up the pieces and, and put the pile of pressure on them. But each and every year, we're going to be, we've been closing the gap now. So hopefully next, you know, hopefully next season and year after that, we're going to be successful. We're the ones going to be top and, and keep winning titles after titles. And so I think Stephen is the man for that. Um, it's up to the board to, to back him, uh, to bring in the players that he wants and he believes that's going to have the right mix of quality um, to, bring to, the, to bring to the football club to be successful. Michael, it's a pleasure to have spoken to you. Um, thanks very much for, for coming on the Four Lads Had a Dream podcast. We hope that you stay safe. We hope that uh, you stay well during these times and um, hope to see you back at Ibrook soon one day, maybe. Yeah, no, I do. Yeah, that's no problem. No, I've enjoyed the break away from, the, uh, from Peppa Pig, <laughs> having a chat with you all. So I hope you, you all still stay safe as well. And you know, yeah, I'll be up. I was up for the... Um, the cup final, which wasn't the best result, but no, I, I get up there as much as I can to, you know, just to see friends who I met up there and still close to now, and to get as many games as I can. So hopefully, when the season starts, I'll be up there very soon. So a huge thank you to Michael Ball for joining us. It's always brilliant to hear from the ex-players, and Michael's not one that, that kind of does this too often. So that's a 
Um, it's a great thing that he came on and gave up his time. As usual, it's a, a massive thanks to our co-host, uh, Mr Chris Jack. Chris, thanks very much, mate. No problem at all. It's a nice to hear from uh, Michael. Not somebody that I've ever dealt with in a uh, professional capacity, but really great to hear his, his range of memories. I thought he spoke really well about the, his time up here and obviously his time at, uh, his time at Rangers. So, no, good to hear from him. Yeah, it was good. Um, I, I was I, I was really happy to hear his stories and it's nice that he, he still holds us in such um, good stead because, Chris, it would have been easy for him, I think, maybe to have a wee bit of bitterness with the way the money went and everything, but it's just good memories and good to know that he, he talked when he talks about Stephen Gerrard there about our club and things like that. That's that's what you want to hear, isn't it? Something you get from a lot of players that either come up from down south or they come in from abroad. Rangers does seem to have to get under their skin, and as a lot of them do do leave, not just having served the club, uh, but as as fans of the club as well. Uh, you could tell from listening to Michael there how much he really you know, enjoyed, even though he went through some difficult times up here. You could tell that he still has that real like, fondness and affection for Rangers. Yeah, definitely. It was um, great to speak to Michael, and all that's really left to be said is obviously a huge thank you to Stuart Franklin um, and Jersnet for their help. Um, Stuart's been Absolutely brilliant through all this, doing all the editing. Get yourself on the Jersnet website, get following them on Twitter, um, where you can also find Chris and Jack, and you can also find ourselves at Four Lads Had a Dream. And also a huge thanks to our sponsors. Um, they are Kerry's Crazy Costumes and obviously the Custom Kitchen Factory guys. As we say every show, without these guys um, giving us the money to edit and put on these shows, then we wouldn't be able to do it. So it's a huge thank you to them. And until next time, um, all that's really left to be said is ignore the nonsense, the relevant and the noise. <laughs>